Welcome to the 15th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews, reviews, and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm your host, Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. These days, it's not unusual to run across a farmer who has some sort of international experience. These agrarian internationalists seem to fall into three broad categories. Ones that go to places like Sweden or New Zealand to learn about innovative systems like deep straw hog production or rotational grazing. Those that take their own techniques abroad to help farmers in third world countries or the former Soviet bloc. And those that join with other farmer activists from all over the world to raise awareness about unjust government policies and corporate practices. Audrey Arner would comfortably fit into all three categories. During the past 10 years, Arner, who raises grass-based beef with her husband Richard Handeen near Montevideo in western Minnesota, has traveled to Cuba to learn about its organic farming system and to Europe to see firsthand the way sustainable farmers market and label their products. She and Handeen have also hosted a farmer from Costa Rica who is now implementing some of what he learned on his own family's operation. In 2004, the couple attended the Tierra Madre, or Slow Food, conference in Italy, where they shared their own experiences about developing local food systems and learned about similar initiatives arising globally. In July 2005, Arner went to Scotland during the G8 Summit. A former Land Stewardship Project organizer in the Western Minnesota office, she recently talked about her globetrotting experiences. Arner began by describing the G8 Summit, which, despite the great impact it has on our world, few people know a whole lot about. People, people don't... Um, know that the G8 is the meeting of the eight most prosperous nations in the world where very powerful, mostly men, decide um, futures for um, hundreds of millions of people. So, um, so you didn't get invited to that? No, we didn't. No, no, no. But, but, but um, just like WTO meetings attract uh, vast numbers of people who actually don't sit in on the meetings, um, uh, we, were, we were not... We didn't participate in the meeting at Glen Eagles. Glen Eagles is um, one of the most prestigious golf courses in Scotland, and it's where these eight most powerful men were were meeting. And whereas there were a lot of people in town in Edinburgh, and while the anarchists were ripping the stones out of the ancient streets of the city, and and while the uh, peaceful protesters were out on the highway with, uh, you know, wonderful, beautiful, colorful banners and chanting. We were in meetings most of the time. They weren't meetings with the leaders, but they were in preparation for um, meetings with other delegates from other parts of the world who were just as serious as we were about ending poverty on the planet. And, uh, and what we found out is that we were preparing ourselves to uh, eventually get a meeting with a couple of senior White House advisors who were going to be at George Bush's elbows the next morning when poverty in Africa was on their agenda. So um, we felt that that was a meeting that we could not have gotten in Washington. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I was interested in mm-hmm. that because that's kind of ironic. Mm-hmm. You came all the way, right? all these thousands of miles, right. to meet with right. these, these guys. That these gentlemen meet with met with us because we were there, because we were persistent, and because we um, communicated with them in politically appropriate channels. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, the leaders of our delegation included the leaders of Bread for the World, Church World Service, CARE, Oxfam, and, and a host of other international relief organizations who were really working together this assiduously for the first time. Um, you know, kind of looking at these, I don't, I don't want to over, overly generalize, but just looking at these various international experiences you've had and talking to other farmers over the years, LSB members and, and others who have gone over to other countries, it seems like in general they kind of break it down into three experiences. One is they go over there to learn something. And the example I'm thinking of is uh, farmers who went to Sweden mm-hmm. in the 90s to, to learn study the, uh, deep straw. Yeah, growing. yeah. Mm-hmm. And and then some went to New Zealand to mm-hmm. learn about rotational grazing. Mm-hmm. And there's various other examples. Mm-hmm. And then the other example, the second example is when when they go to teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, I know farmers who've gone who went to Russia when it was. Right. You know, mm-hmm. things were uh, falling apart there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. so to teach them entrepreneurial agriculture, that type of thing. Right. To teach them uh, being able to make decisions for yourself. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then the third uh, kind of way overly generalized example I was thinking of was uh, to join forces with other farmers around the world mm-hmm. in kind of in an activist role. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess. Uh, which are you? Are you all three? I guess I, I guess I would have to say I'm all three. Um, I, I think back to the Cuban experience, and it was very much that uh, kind of cultural and agricultural exchange. Um, we had something to share from the the wealth of experience that was represented by the the U.S. farmers who were present there and who are blessed to have a, a phenomenally well developed infrastructure that allows us to channel information and products and um, inputs and that, that's just not the case in Cuba where we learned how so many are able to do so much with so little hmm. and um, it, it's also where I realized uh, I, I was kind of caught up in the native plants versus non-native plants debate at that time and in Cuba, they have really gone for whatever will grow there and help to serve their purposes. Mm-hmm. So they've um, reinstituted a lot of uh, native plants, both for food and for uh, medicinal purposes, mm-hmm. um, but also looked around the planet for, for other plants that will grow in their conditions, their various um, biomes on the island mm-hmm. uh, that will help to be able to support a people who are pretty much cut off from commerce in the rest of the right. world. Well, I remember you had, you had talked about how um, one concern was, well, that they were being f- kind of forced, quote-unquote, to be organic because they're cut off uh, from the rest of the world. But one concern is maybe as trade relations open up that they would adapt a more chemical-intensive industrialized system. But you'd, you felt, I think at the time, that you saw a real deep-rooted uh, a devotion to more right. organic systems. And, and we were exposed to the ardent leaders and proponents of an agricultural movement that was based much more on, on the island's own resources mm-hmm. that wouldn't rely on fuel from the Soviet Union or tractor parts from the Soviet Union. Right. Um, so having to be more self-reliant 
uh, isn't necessarily something that they chose, but they have learned how to do it as well as anybody can, I think, yeah. um, in this um, new century uh, here, on, here on the planet, um, because they're so incredibly resourceful. And and creative to uh, like the nth degree, music proliferates farming in the way that um, that the radio does <laughs> here in the United States. People just sing on their way to working or or uh, um, in 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 situations where farmers are are coming together because they're we're going to exchange information. Uh, music or or dancing or some kind of uh, artistic presence was always a part of our cultural exchange. Hmm. You know, um, globalization in some areas has actually become kind of a dirty word. Mm-hmm. But I read something recently that I, I found kind of interesting where they were talking about someone was saying that they felt that globalization had the potential to both help and harm uh, the small to medium-sized food producer. And uh, uh, what they were saying was, you know, the, the obvious harm it comes in in terms of race to the bottom, we're trying to compete with, on a global basis, so we got food producers food as cheap as we can, you know, environmental controls be damned and all that. But on the benefit side, and I hadn't really thought about this, it also creates a lot of niches out there mm-hmm. and creates connections with, other farmers mm-hmm. that these farmers wouldn't normally have. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts were on that with some of the stuff you've seen, uh, particularly on the positive side. Is, it, is that something you... you well, you know, it makes me think about um, the uh, Malian cotton farmer who came to visit uh, LSP and other organizations like ours uh, last spring. And Alimata Traore came to us because of the impoverished situation of cotton farmers in in her country and in, in and surrounding countries brought about by uh, the globaliz- globalization of uh, commodity markets and and uh, U.S. commodities flooding the global market, suppressed prices and being unable to sell their cotton crop or even have enough resources to be able to harvest it in some cases. Um, now, uh, that renders them unable to buy medicine if their kid gets malaria or to be able to send their kids to school. Um, so, yeah, that that's one aspect of globalization, but globalization also is what brought her to us and what increases our level of awareness. And um, we talked at the, at the World Meeting of Food Communities in Torino about um, that what we are experiencing as... You know, slow food is one of the umbrellas, but but locally and regionally, there are all kinds of uh, organizations fostering the emergence. And I, I feel like it's like popcorn coming out of the planet, uh, whereby people are responding to globalization in a way that that uh, that precipitates the 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 creation of of new products or, or that, that brings back old products or that preserves genetics or that preserves um, uh, traditional means of, of processing um, and that makes foods that taste really good. 
And so, yeah, there are market niches for it, um, these things. And, and where, whereas I, I feel like it's our responsibility in every region on the planet to feed our region first and then, um, as Wendell Berry says, to, to export the excess. <laughs> Um, so, so if here in Western Minnesota, we would grow carrots because carrots would grow well here mm-hmm. if we grew them here. Um, but we don't because we don't get rewarded for growing carrots here. But then, if we had leftover, we could, you know, ship them to northern Minnesota where perhaps carrots don't grow as well. Well, well what you're talking about is just the opposite of what we've got, where we right. produce for the world market. Mm-hmm. And there's been several studies showing that, ironically some of the poorest quality produce in particular, but even meat, mm-hmm. to be found is in small rural grocery stores. Mm-hmm. And there aren't even grocery stores anymore. Mm-hmm. It's going to be the, the convenience mart, the sea store, yeah. or the quick trip. One of my lifetime mentors uh, used to say that the closer you get to the land, the worse the food gets. <laughs> <laughs> and that's certainly been my experience for most of my time in rural Minnesota, and, I, and I'm glad to witness that changing now. But um, I, I, in speaking of, of this kind of emergence, like the Pride of the Prairie, like the local foods initiatives that are uh, popcorning out of Minnesota, out of the North American continent, and really everywhere on the planet in response to go- globalization, I think will be a, a, a persistent, quiet, but powerful emergence that has great tenacity and that has every, that will have every capability to replace globalization as we are coming to know it. So um, it's longer term thinking to um, to not just plug into the market forces and the production forces that, that exist in this time, but um, but there are a tremendous number of people who are committed to it and and committed also to the quality of food and the quality of human health and environmental health and mm-hmm. social health as a consequence. Well, you bring up the point, it's longer-term thinking. What do we do about these people who are starving right now? They're dying every day. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think that we need to cancel the debt for countries that are unable to um, contend with with problems of AIDS or problems from um, famine with their own country in their own countries because they're servicing debt to the um, developed nations. Mm-hmm. There's no re- the developed nations do not. Um, I don't think we deserve to to be charging interest anymore on monies that were lent generations ago to, um, and and that is not um, meeting the the needs of people who are hungry today. Um, I think we have to um, improve the way that we provide aid um, and let uh, countries in need decide whether commodities are what they need or if money is what they need uh, and and increasingly trust what has been a pretty corrupt um, uh, African many African leaderships have been uh, renowned for their uh, corrupt natures and but I think all that is shifting as as their populations are holding them more accountable mm-hmm. and the rest of the world is holding them accountable so um, so how those resources are dispersed within uh, very 
needy, very uh, uh, limited resource uh, communities will will be something that will be changing. Hmm. And that's something you, at the G8, you were mm-hmm. pushing, was the canceling of the debt. Canceling the debt, yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to the G8 a little bit. So mm-hmm. how did uh, you got to talk to these people who were going to be at the elbows of the president? Yeah. What impact did that have, if any? Do you feel well, like it had an impact? Um, we felt uh, fairly well listened to. Hmm. Um, we met with the... Uh, uh, assistant National Security Advisor, um, or no, it was the National Security Advisor's um, media person. Okay. And uh, a fellow who's an undersecretary re- related to aid in in developing nations. But they were key. They had just flown in from Denmark. They'd just been in another meeting. They had been in G8 meetings all day and and decided that they could meet with us at 11 o'clock at night because it was the only time they had and and that was also free on our schedules. Um, and although there was certainly an element of tension at, at first mm-hmm. <laughs> because we felt like, okay, we're in the same room now. Um, like the dog that caught the car finally. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> now what do we do with it? But the, uh, there actually was a uh, a very well-developed strategy to, to uh, let these gentlemen know that not only are we here now, but we will be continuing to be vigilant. That the, the many members of the One Campaign across the United States will be monitoring how the administration... Um, deals with these questions at hand mm-hmm. of um, too many people dying of 50,000 people a day dying because they don't have enough to eat mm. because if uh, 50,000 people died in Tokyo on Sunday and if 50,000 people died in Little Rock on Monday and if 50,000 people died in Winnipeg on Tuesday, mm-hmm. and on and on throughout the G8 countries. And then if the next week it just kept on happening, people would respond. And so with that, um, with uh, a changing nature of awareness about the depth of the poverty and the depth of, of devastation that, that's going on, we have to call for a stop to this because we have every capability as a civilization here on the planet to do so. It's time to stop. You're not coming. You can't come back to Montevideo and say on the local radio station, uh, China is going to buy, or Cuba, or whoever is going to buy mm-hmm. two hundred thousand bushels a year mm-hmm. soybeans next fall. <laughs> You're coming back with a much more complicated message. So right, and it and it includes um, smaller and uh, and. And uh, less comprehensive uh, answers, I guess. Just ideas that we get from places that we visit about the nature of how commerce is done, the way they do a label, the way packaging happens, the message development, how many pieces of information on an eco-label a consumer can take in before they want to know anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, That's all been really valuable 
cumulative information for us that we hope to have shared in a way that, that makes a difference for the greater community. Has this changed your view of what you consider local food? What, what you consider a local food system? Hmm. I mean, should we be not importing coffee to Minnesota? Well, you know, um, I guess because I feel good about the particular coffee that we drink because we can trace it back to the farm where it was produced. Mm -hmm. And we know that it's helpful for that family that we buy their coffee. And so it feels like there's a reciprocity there because um, we get to help them out and we get to drink coffee. Um, that's That's a stickler with things like coffee and chocolate and olives for heaven's sakes you know i just love olives but um uh that's uh again one of those cases of producing as much as we can as much diversity as we can to be able to feed the region first and then if we have leftover if we're so fortunate to experience that kind of abundance then we can share it with the region down the road now you've hosted farmers here as well just recently didn't you have you've hosted farmers from other countries um, here at your farm? Well, we just, uh, through the University of Minnesota, we uh, hooked up with a young man from Costa Rica mm-hmm. who spent the summer with us. When the University of Minnesota takes students to study about ecological agriculture and sustainable systems in Costa Rica, which Costa Rica is fairly well known for because right. they have extensive national parks and they're uh, kind of attuned to ecotourism, um, when they want to look at entrepreneurial agriculture, how a small farm is making it in the face of a um, huge plummet in global coffee prices some years back, which put a lot of small medium-sized coffee growers out of business. Um, And, 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 you know, just how family-scale farms are making it in other places of the world, or in in Costa Rica, um, the students visit this farm where uh, our friend Guillermo's dad is very energy conscious, very uh, uh, committed to diversification, committed to serving as president of his local organic coffee cooperative. Um, And they used to grow just cane and just coffee. And like us, they decided if they were going to survive, they needed to diversify. So now they have mm-hmm. been buying with the profits from the organic coffee doing much better than conventional coffee. They've been buying cows and reintroducing livestock to their farm. They now milk cows and sell yogurt and cheese yeah. and they have a little egg operation and a greenhouse and do other vegetables. So there's, there's meaningful work for all family members um, that results in a variety of enterprises that make them pretty attractive place to visit as well as um, uh, having more market potential. So uh, Guillermo was here to learn English but also to experience a small, <laughs> It was we're, we're a very large farm again right. uh, compared to the scale of their operation, but, um, but came here to, to learn how it is we do things, how we make decisions. He, was particularly intrigued with the fact that we have a guest cottage on our farm, and uh, my last email from him uh, says that they've started construction on the guest house. Yeah. 
so that they'll be able to host not only students but other ecotourists and now he's able to greet them in English and explain about the nature of their operation in English. You can read more about Audrey Arner's international experiences in the October, November, December 2005 issue of the Land Stewardship Letter. That issue, which focuses on globalization, features several other articles on food, farming, and the international experience. To find an electronic copy of the newsletter, go to www.landstewardshipproject.org, click on Newsroom, and follow the links to the Land Stewardship Letter. Send your comments, criticisms, and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. That's bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also get me on the horn at 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician and an LSB staffer who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and would like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.